0: I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me uh, reiterate what Ken mentioned during the call to worship, and that is not only uh, next Sunday and the service that we'll have to remember the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave, but I also want to call your attention to Friday evening. Um, I want to encourage you to dig down. Dig really deep and ask yourself, when's the last time I've been to a Good Friday service? Those of you who have been, it will be no problem to encourage you to come back because you know that uh, Jason and the worship team, they just do a tremendous job in leading us in a really, really special time of worship. Those of you that have never been or it's been been many years since you have come, uh, I want to, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to plead with you. I'm on my knees. You need to come because you, you are missing out on an absolutely phenomenal time of worship. We have some other things planned, some special things, some, uh, some refreshments that we'll have afterwards. It'll just be a, a wonderful time to fellowship with our Savior and a wonderful time to fellowship with one another. Now, have I convinced 100% of you to come? Amen. Do I need to get on my knees again? No. Okay, good. <laughs> Pretty pitiful, huh? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Will you join me and have a word of prayer? Our God and our Father, thank you for uh, what this week represents uh, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today. And we anticipate uh, a special time on Friday as we remember uh, the person and work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we... uh, celebrate his resurrection from the grave on Sunday. We are so blessed uh, here as a nation. We're blessed uh, to worship you freely. We're blessed that we have have, uh, the Word of God open before us. And today, as we conclude our series on discipleship, would you give us special uh, insight and understanding into these truths, into your Word? We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, and that you would mobilize our hands and our feet uh, to go uh, to obey the, the commandment that says to go in all the world and to preach the gospel. Uh, to baptize people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, all for your glory and honor that we teach the nations to obey uh, what the Word of God uh, proclaims. So we look forward to a great time together today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, discipleship. Discipleship is not simply a door to be entered, but a path to be followed. The disciple proves the validity of his discipleship by following that path to the very end. King David wrote about it in Psalm chapter 119, and the section begins, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it ends with these words, My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. James Boyce says, That's it. The true disciple follows Jesus to the end of everything. And that concludes our study together. As we recognize that as followers of Jesus, we are to obey Him all the way until the very end. Well, for the last few weeks, we have asked this question. How can we help to establish a disciple-making culture? I want to show you this, this chart that we have really labored over for the last few weeks. We began by uh, stressing the pulpit, and we come together as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to this pulpit where our focus is, is, is sent upward. Our focus is on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we turn our attention to the table. The table takes place in homes and in coffee shops and around the community, and here our focus is turned inward as we build relationships that glorify God. Finally, we take a careful look at the importance of the square, which is our focus in this final message today. And so the title of the message is The Square, Disciples Moving Outward. The square is what I like to commonly refer to as the marketplace of ideas. The square is where we find people who are hurting. We find people who are hopeless. We run into people who are lonely and, and confused. We meet people in the square with various kinds of needs. We learned very quickly that people in the square have physical needs, they have financial needs, they have emotional needs. And to sum it up, we can say that as we wander into the marketplace of ideas, as we wander into the square, we find profound need. As we wander around in the square, we bump into people who have worldviews that are, are totally different than the worldviews that we are accustomed to. We will run into atheists. We will run into agnostics. We will encounter Buddhists, and we will uh, encounter Hindus. We will meet Mormons. We will meet Jehovah's Witnesses. And in the square, we will meet sympathizers of the so-called LGBT movement. We will get to know environmentalists. We will run into liberals. We will run into conservatives. We will run into people who are somewhere in between. We will meet Marxists. We will meet communists. In the square, we will meet people almost on a daily basis who will not see eye to eye with us and with what the Bible teaches on a variety of issues. This is what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to love all kinds of people from a wide variety of backgrounds. And loving people by definition loving people by definition involves and requires a ministry of proclamation. It means that we are each missionaries sent into the square to boldly bear witness to the saving benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we fail to go outward, the Christian faith, I think you will understand, will begin to grow anemic. When we fail to grow outward, when we fail to move out into the square, our Christian faith can very quickly become stale. When we fail to go outward, the, the world will fail to hear the most important message, the most important stories we heard about in Call to Worship. When we fail to go to the square, you see, people fail to hear the gospel message. When we fail to go outward, really... We jettison the command that Jesus gives, and that is the commandment to go. You're very familiar with Jesus' words to his disciples and to you and I. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This morning, as we consider the imperative to go into the square, I want to ask, what is it that prevents obedience from taking place? And really, a a sermon or a series of sermons can be written that address that, but I just want to focus only for a moment on three. I think by far the biggest thing that prevents you and I from, from moving outward into the square is fear. The biggest thing that prevents us from moving into the square is fear. It is fear that prevents us from saying the kinds of things that we need to say. It is fear that prevents you and I from reaching out to lost people. I can tell you that there are times in my own Christian life when I, I stand on the edge of, of, of this precipice in a conversation. And I know I need to say something. And in the times that I don't say that something, I walk away discouraged and wondering why, why I'm such a scaredy cat. But on the other side, there are times when I, I'm standing on the precipice and I actually say what God's calling me to say. And whether the person receives it or not, you walk away feeling so grateful that God emboldened you to minister the word of God in truth and grace. Fear prevents us from moving outward. There's something else that prevents us from moving into the square, and that is simply apathy. And I think this this particular sin has the church um, in a tight grasp, as we just we forget to care about people in our community. And then finally is the sin of selfishness. We're so consumed with our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, that we are prevented from moving out faithfully to the square. But Jesus' command to go is still in force 2,000 years later. He not only commands us to go, as we will learn in this study today, He gives you and I the courage to go. Now, with your Bible open before you to the book of Acts, the the book of Acts is what you might consider a bridge from the Gospels to the rest of the New Testament. At the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples witness the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their interest, however, is on the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, their mind was not set on what Jesus intended that their minds be set on. Jesus now reorients them to a far more pressing theme. Look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know... Times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. I imagine those disciples who had their their mindset on something totally altogether different. I can just imagine them scratching their head going, Lord, say again, Lord, we we don't understand. Now look at verse eight in chapter one, and this is the passage that we will labor over this morning. Jesus says, but you will receive Power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth exactly what is the source of this courage that jesus promises to his disciples and promises to all the subsequent disciples that is you and i what does it is involve what does this power involve and how will it serve you and i in the square Over the next few minutes, we are going to really labor over Acts chapter 1 and also a passage in Acts chapter 18 where we will find some absolutely towering truths that I believe will get all of us out of the starting blocks and into the race and most specifically into the marketplace of ideas, what we're calling the square. There are four things I want to draw your attention to this morning, and the first we will spend the most time on. First, I want you to see divine power. Divine power. Once again in verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples, He tells us, "...but you will receive power." I want you to see the significance of this power for a moment and realize as we look at the word power, the Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get the, word, the, the English word dynamite. It means supernatural power to perform a task. Jesus tells the disciples, you, future tense, will receive power. You will receive power. There's several things about this power I want to draw your attention to. First, notice that this is a mighty power. I remember typing these words several days ago, and as I reviewed my notes this morning, I realized where I picked up the phrase mighty power. I took a preaching course almost 20 years ago from Dr. Luis Palau. And I remember Dr. Palau, who is an Argentine by birth, with a a, a very heavy accent. He used to talk about the mighty power. And I always remember thinking, that sounds so cool. Mighty power. And I'm not exaggerating. That's how he would say it. And then he said, my wife teases me. She says, that's redundant. Mighty power. And I thought to myself, no, no, no. I like it. Mighty power. That's what Jesus is referring to. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is a mighty power that jesus promises his disciples as he commissions them to go into the square second this is an unrivaled power you remember in romans chapter 8 it is probably one of the most important chapters in all of scripture Paul says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, this is an unrivaled power that Jesus promises His disciples. This is power that prevents anyone from wandering away from the Christian faith. This is power that prevents demons in hell from snatching away the salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, I want you to see that this is an enabling power. An enabling power. In a verse in Colossians chapter 1 that is just just packed in a partial sentence, Paul says, "...being strengthened," that's from the word dunamis, "...being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy." You see, as we faithfully move out into the marketplace of ideas, as we move into the square, we are promised enabling power. Think about that with me. Wherever it is that, that you find yourself, whether it's in a park, whether it's in an office complex, whether it's your place of employment, whether it's one of my favorite places at Starbucks, and you engage with people, you are given enabling power but pastor you don't understand what if I don't know the answer that's not the issue the issue is you were promised enabling power furthermore you were you are given extraordinary power in Ephesians one twenty one, Paul says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is an extraordinary power that we can scarcely understand. This extraordinary power that we'll see in a moment burst forth onto the disciples as they moved throughout the Middle East as they moved throughout Israel and beyond to share the marvelous gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The significance of the power cannot be overestimated or underestimated. Or rather, it, should not, it cannot be overstated or underestimated. This is supernatural power to proclaim the gospel, to live the Christian life, and to conquer sin on a daily basis. I want to move from the significance of this power and focus especially on the source of this power. And look with me once again at Acts 1.8 where Jesus says, You will receive power from whom? He says it's power that is derived from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of this power. And what's important to understand as we we look at the importance of the Holy Spirit is to remember that as Jesus unpacks this very important sentence, He says that the Holy Spirit as the source of power is a future reality for the disciples. Think again in the first century. Jesus tells His disciples that the Holy Spirit is a future reality for you. He says, you will receive The power of the Holy Spirit. As I studied this passage, I thought to myself that this must have been an incredibly encouraging moment for the disciples to learn that they would receive the dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit. For so the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was an infrequent one. It involved select leaders in Israel. It was a temporary role that he had and involved power, empowerment for service. The disciples now knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so for them, this is a future reality. But then as we move forward in the book of Acts, beyond this particular scene in Acts 1, we see that it is not only a future reality, it is actually an experienced reality beginning in Acts chapter 2. Beginning at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit, you remember, empowered Peter to boldly proclaim the truth of God's word in Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 40. The Holy Spirit empowered Christ followers to boldly proclaim God's truth. Look with me and I want to walk you through several passages in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 4 verse 31. Acts 4 verse 31. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I imagine the disciples hearkening back to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ says there will come a day when you will receive Power from the Holy Spirit. Now they experience it. It's an ongoing reality for them. The Holy Spirit, moreover, empowered men to assist the apostles. Look at Acts chapter six, verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. This is a passage about the 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 choosing of the deacons. Pick out men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint. To this duty. I must say that we are in uh, an exciting season in the life of Christ Fellowship where we have yet another group of not only elders, but also a group of deacons. And this group of deacons has stepped up to the plate and they're they're coming to the elders and they're saying, We, we are ready to serve. We are ready to serve, and I need to tell you, they're serving. And so, I want to personally, as your pastor, I want to thank the deacons in particular for the good work that they're doing here at Christ Fellowship, and trust that the Holy Spirit will continue to power you, empower you, as the as the uh, original deacons in Acts chapter six were empowered as well. Notice also in Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-five. Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-five. Here is the segment of Scripture that talks about the stoning of Stephen. And we read in this particular verse, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here, the Holy Spirit marvelously and miraculously empowered Stephen to fearlessly proclaim the word of God. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, we see how the Holy Spirit empowered Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I have to be honest with you, this morning as I was praying, I was praying some very select prayers for our friends in ISIS. Any of you with me? Were you praying some select prayers for ISIS and went something like this? Get them, God. Exert your vengeance on these evil, evil people. I don't know if you heard the report this morning, but ISIS struck two churches at Coptic... Christian places of worship in Egypt and several people were killed. And then the thought struck me that the apostle Paul did the same thing that ISIS did just a few hours ago. And so the prayers of my heart turned to draw them to faith and repentance. Is it possible that a member of ISIS could be a powerhouse for the gospel in the Middle East, it's entirely possible, as we've seen it happen also in the life of Paul the Apostle. Well, Paul the Apostle was not only empowered by the Holy Spirit, we see in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, that Barnabas, likewise, is empowered. Acts eleven twenty-four. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then finally, in Acts chapter 13, verse 52, we see that the Holy Spirit now empowered Paul, Barnabas, and the rest of the disciples. In Acts chapter 13, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, this is a future reality for you to the disciples. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a powerful way, and the disciples experienced the power of the Holy Spirit as a present reality, how does this relate to you and I? Well, now, on the other side of Pentecost, this is an ongoing reality for you and for me. If you were a Christ follower, the Word of God says you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You can't get any more of Him. Much to the chagrin of others in in, in other theological traditions who say you can get more and find evidence of the Holy Spirit through the sign gifts and what have you, recognize that if you are a Christ follower, you have been baptized and dwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. These are accomplished realities that can never be taken from you. Additionally, you have been called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Would you do an exercise together with me? Raise your hand if you've ever asked God, God, what is your will for my life? See how many of you have asked. It's amazing. What happened to the rest of you? God, what is your will for my life? And it's this perplexing question there. I've spent hours of time over the years with with men who have come to me and say, Pastor, I just can't figure out what the will of the Lord is. Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, we are told this, It is God's will that you are to be filled by His Spirit moment by moment. And as you submit to the Holy Spirit, you will find that He will empower you in the square. As you surrender afresh to the third member of the Godhead, the promise in the word of God is that you will be empowered, that you will be unleashed in the square. You say, but you don't understand. What if I don't know what to say? Or what if I don't know the answer? What if I don't know where to start? The word of God says, this is the promise. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. As I thought through high points of church history, I thought of the life and the influence of George Whitefield. George, George Whitfield was a, a fiery evangelist who saw many, many people come to saving faith through his preaching ministry. Well, in 1753... A man by the name of Samuel Davies, who would actually be the successor to Jonathan Edwards as uh, president at Princeton University. This man, Samuel Davies, would set sail for England. I want you to just use your imagination. 1753, he's going to board a ship and go across the Atlantic. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I want to go across the Atlantic on a ship in in, in our day. That's a little bit scary. In 1753, in a big old wooden ship, yeah, count me out. On his arrival, after this rocky, rocky, stormy journey, the first business of the day for Samuel Davies was to find the pulpit of George Whitefield. Why? Because he wanted to hear this man preach. And after the sermon was delivered, Samuel Davies said, quote, the unction that attended it was such that I would gladly risk the rigors of shipwreck in the Atlantic many times over in order just to be there to come under its gracious influence. Can you imagine traveling all that way to hear a sermon? What was it? It was the power of the Holy Spirit that had gripped the life and the ministry of George Whitfield. Well, the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit was not just limited to men like George Whitfield or the apostles. The empowering ministry of the Spirit is available for you and for me. And by way of application, let me just give you a few things to, to take to the bank, if you will, this afternoon. First, the Holy Spirit will grant boldness when you proclaim the truth. I want to encourage you just to begin by opening your mouth and allowing the Holy Spirit to use you in a powerful way as he promises to grant boldness when you proclaim the truth. Second, the Holy Spirit will grant clarity of mind. That is, he will bring to mind scriptures that will encourage people, convict people, and draw people to the Christian faith. I can remember over the years, time and time again, when I'm involved in a conversation, a a one-on-one conversation with another individual, or in a teaching setting, or a preaching setting, and a scripture will pop into my mind that I haven't read or heard about in some time. That is the power of the Holy Spirit bringing clarity of mind to that situation. Number three, the Holy Spirit will, moreover, grant courage in the face of insurmountable odds. This is the divine power that we can expect to receive in the square. And remember the square is simply our community. The square is is Nooksack, the square is Everson, and Sumas and Linden and Bellingham all corners of the earth. This is the ministry that God calls us to. Secondly, if you go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Move with me from the divine power to the divine purpose. The divine purpose. And there's another word that emerges here in Acts 1-8 that we need to wrestle with as we examine the scope of ministry. Exactly what kind of ministry are we to have? We see in Acts 1-8 that we are called witnesses. Witnesses. It comes from the Greek word uh, uh, that is translated into English as martyr. A martyr who is a witness for Jesus and may even die because of that witness. We are witnesses. The word of God says that this person will bear witness with his or her life to the power of the gospel. This person bears witness with his or her words. Luke chapter 9 verse 2. Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, in Luke twenty four forty seven, the word of God says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in all His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. There's a phrase that I'm sure some of you have heard in recent days. It's a phrase that's a it's a slogan, if you will, that is becoming quite popular. And it's a slogan that, when I hear it, frankly, it makes me cringe. And I hope it makes you cringe as well. It's the phrase that goes something like this. Deeds, not creeds. Have you heard that? Deeds, not creeds. And the the essence of it probably comes from good motivation is we need to reach out to people. We need to love people. We need to serve people. We need to help people. We need to love people. That's the deeds part. And I think we're all good with the deeds part. We ought to be a people committed to deeds, committed to good works, Ephesians 2, verse 10. But to say deeds, not creeds, deeds, not creeds is a a powerless ministry, is a ministry that is uninformed, is a ministry that is unequipped. In other words, we need deeds and we need creeds. We need work and we need theology hand in hand. Sometimes bearing witness is a simple act of extending the hand or helping a neighbor or helping a friend. And ultimately, however, it involves proclaiming the word of God. Sometimes bearing witness, as our brothers and sisters in Egypt learned a few hours ago, involves a severe cost. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness, to be a martyr before them and the Gentiles. If the global spread of historic Christianity has taught us anything, it is this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we've seen that throughout church history. That when the church is persecuted, the church grows. When the church is oppressed, the church thrives. After sharing the biographies of three faithful missionaries, William Tyndale, Adrián Judson, and John Patton, one author challenges us with these words. He says, Let us resolve to set our faces like flint." On the path of obedience and never turn back. And with a full grasp of the possible cost before us, and with the courage because of Christ, let us walk softly to every unreached people group that remains. Now, verse 8 in chapter 1 moves us from the scope of the ministry to the sphere of the ministry. That is, we understand what we're called to do to bear witness to the sake of the gospel, but where are we called to go? What is the sphere of ministry? Look at verse 8 once again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in, here's the sphere, Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the sphere of ministry. I want to show you a map that may not may not show up very well. We want to look at the map and you can see at the really uh, the, the lower portion of the map you see Jerusalem and then south of Jerusalem, you see Judea and then north of Jerusalem, you see Samaria and really, what Jesus is talking about, he says to the disciples, "Your sphere of ministry begins in your hometown." Your sphere of ministry begins in Nooksack or Everson or Sumas or Bellingham or Linden. That's your sphere of ministry. But then you move out. You move out from Jerusalem to Judea, Washington, if you will, to Samaria, the United States, if you will, and to all the ends of the earth. Some of you will go to Mexico. Some of you will go to Scotland. Some of you will go to Russia. Some of you will go to Australia some of you will stay right here and continue to bear witness for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ but the application of these realities are very simple and profound the Great Commission begins in our hometown and moves in concentric circles until every tribe and nation is reached with the saving message of the gospel secondly the Great Commission simply beckons us to go and when we, are, when we go, we are called to proclaim the Word of God, not to merely perform deeds, but to associate creeds, to include creeds in our proclamation as well. I love Romans chapter 10 because many will say, Why go? Why share the Word of God? Don't you believe in election? And the answer is absolutely. The Word of God teaches the doctrine. But in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, here's what Paul says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul continues, but they have not not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Move with me and look at another passage in Acts chapter 18. I want to move from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 18. And as you turn to Acts chapter 18, I want to highlight, third, a divine presence. A divine presence. And this is a a promise for you to remember. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, that Jesus Christ told his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. But there's something else that happens in Acts chapter 18 now that I want uh, to have you look at with me. Look at Acts 18, verse 9. Paul now is in Corinth, proclaiming the gospel. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. There's some very interesting things he says to Paul in this vision. Do you not agree? First, he says, don't be afraid, which suggests that there may have been some kind of latent fear in Paul. That's a little bit of a shocker to me, because who is more bold than the apostle Paul? But he's also a human being like you and I. So God says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am. Am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. This is the promise that God leaves with Paul the Apostle. And as I studied this verse, uh, a smile burst burst forth onto my countenance as I realized this mighty promise that Jesus will be with us always. He will be with us always. And I I want you to think about the implications of this promise. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we wander about in the square, will be with us always. We not only possess the divine power of the Holy Spirit, we have the divine presence of Jesus Christ until the end of the age. Are you still afraid to bear witness? Are you still Passive when it comes to evangelism, my encouragement to you today is to, to claim the promise that Jesus is with you always until the end of the age. Three very brief points of application. Number one, be courageous in the square. Be courageous in the square. Secondly, be bold in the square. Be bold in the square. If someone tells you to be less bold, you become more bold. If someone tells you you to be less courageous, you you become more courageous. And finally, be obedient in the square. And to be obedient in the square means that you have a good testimony in the square. It means you proclaim the truth in the square. It means you love your neighbor as you love yourself in the square. Finally, finally, I want to move from divine presence and draw your attention to what I have called divine perspective. And this divine perspective gives us a bold confidence. And it's a, it's a, it's a verse that you probably wouldn't normally read in your devotions and make this application. But it is a mighty application. Look again at verse 10. In the vision, God says to Paul, For I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you. And don't miss the power of this principle here. For I have many people in this city who are my people. I have many people in this city. This is our divine perspective when we engage in the square. You see, as we wander around in the square, as we proclaim the truth in the square, no doubt our attempts at evangelism will be met with opposition. Our efforts at evangelism will be met with questions. Our efforts at evangelism will be met with criticism, but we can be assured that there are many people in this city who are my people. I have a friend who served for almost 15 years in a dangerous country in the Middle East, and he worked with Muslims and He worked day after day after day, and one of his main ministries was just, as he shared this with me, was to to go to coffee shops and develop friendships with Muslims. You see, you walk up to a Muslim cold turkey and share the gospel, that will be the end of that conversation. This is what my friend learned. But you build a friendship. You build a relationship. You build this strong uh, uh, brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister friendship with a Muslim. And you have a friend for life. And my friend was in this Middle Eastern country for year after year after year. And year after year, he saw no fruit. My question is, if I could come back and ask him this question today did you remember acts chapter 10 was that your perspective that i have many people in this city what is the practical ramification we need to find the people in the city and how do we find the people in the city we share the gospel we share the saving message of the gospel of the lord jesus christ in revelation 5 we read these amazing words And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom for God every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is the assurance that we have as we send missionaries to the foreign field. We know that God has representatives, if you will. There are members of God's elect in every tribe and nation all around the world. That is the assurance that a missionary has. That is the assurance that you and I have is our our challenge is to share the message. Our challenge is to proclaim the truth. And by God's grace, the elect begin to show up. By God's grace, the elect will hear the message. Their hearts will be softened and they will be drawn to saving faith. When you have a chance to talk to people about the gospel, remember this verse. Remember Acts chapter 18 verse 10 and remember that he has chosen some that he will draw them to salvation irresistibly and that God is greatly glorified when you tell people the simple message of the gospel. Here's a final challenge. And I want to have you turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 48, as we gaze upon three concluding verses Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9, 10, and 11. For my name's sake. I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Notice for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it for how should my name be profaned. My glory, I will not give to another. John Piper says that God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. It never ceases to amaze me that he has chosen people like you and me. That he has chosen you and I as as disciples, as his primary agents who will help to reveal his glory. The question always comes back. Could he have done it without us? And the answer is. Yes. Yes, he could have done it without us. But in his all wise and infinite providence, he chooses to use you and me. Why? For his glory. For his glory. Before William Carey, one of the most well-known missionaries of all time. Before he set off to set sail for India, where he would serve as a missionary. A man got in his face. This is a story that has always mystified me, but a man got in his face before William Carey took off, and he said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And I'm sure that there are many people who were in that gathering that thought, yeah, He'll do it without your aid or mine. But I can tell you this much, William Carey thought that was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. And William Carey was right. Because while God could reach the nations without your aid or mine, he doesn't. He chooses to use you and me and men like William Carey. This is a man who simply opposed William Carey, a man who just did not understand the Scripture, and he did not understand our role in the Great Commission. Another well-known missionary, a hero of mine, Hudson Taylor, said this, The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. And so Jesus says to every disciple and every would-be disciple, Follow me. Follow me. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, in addition to all the things that we've learned about over the last 12 weeks, God is calling you to the pulpit. He's calling you to gather on a weekly basis for public worship where your gaze is directed upward. He's calling you as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to the table where he calls you to cultivate relationships horizontally that focus inward, where strong relationships are formed. And my prayer in the days ahead that that would continue here at Christ Fellowship, that there would be many coffee appointments, there would be many lunches, there would be many dinners, that there would be many rounds of golf. Amen? Yeah. That there would be times of fellowship. I got to get the ladies in. That there would be great times of tea. That there would be times to to walk in the parks, to be together, to have koinonia, to love one another, to challenge one another, to encourage one another. And finally, God calls us to the square, where he calls us to the community, where he calls us to the marketplace of ideas to proclaim the gospel, which is ultimately focused outward. So as we conclude this study together, I want to invite you on an adventure of a lifetime. Many of you began this adventure years and years ago. Many of you are coming to the end of this adventure where one day you will stand on the shores of the celestial city. And you will be with your Savior forever and ever and ever. Others of you are just getting started. Some of you have just gotten started over the last several months or the last year or two, and what an adventure lies before you. Finally, there are some in this congregation who have not yet taken the plunge of discipleship. You have not yet turned over the reins of your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to to turn to Jesus and to turn from your sins. To recognize that Jesus died on a cross. That three days later that he was raised miraculously from the dead. And that he ascended where he is at the right hand of the Father. Ruling and reigning for all eternity. He calls sinners to himself. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He loved to plead with sinners. And I doubt that he ever got on his knees like I foolishly did a few moments ago. But he may as well may have well have gotten on his knees because he begged sinners to come. And I beg you if you have never trusted Jesus today is the day of salvation. It will be the greatest decision of your life. It will be the greatest adventure you've ever partaken of. Our challenge together is to move forward faithfully and boldly all for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that you have helped us to understand uh, over the last 12 weeks in this study. Well, what a, a joy and an honor it is to, to be followers of Jesus. To be worshipers of Jesus. To, to turn to him. To trust in him. To turn from our sins. Uh, to rely on him for everything. And now God, as we consider uh, the square today as our attention moves from upward at the pulpit and inward in uh, community at the table. Ultimately our focus now is focus outward in the square. And so I pray that you would give us courage that comes as a result of the powerful ministry of the Holy spirit, that you would give us boldness that comes from that ministry as well. That you give us the ability to open our mouths and to boldly proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, sometimes we wonder why our church uh, doesn't grow like we would like it to grow. And God, we are most interested in seeing people come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And coming here to this church family to be nurtured, uh, to be strengthened, to be taught, to be equipped. And then... Likewise, to, to go to the nations to share the message of the gospel. Uh, these are exciting days, God, and I, I pray that you would equip us on a daily basis, that you would challenge us and that we would respond obediently to the call. We uh, look forward with great anticipation to see that all, that all that you will accomplish here at Christ Fellowship in the days ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.